Uh, it's a privilege, as always, to share the Word of God with you this morning. Um, Dr. Ballard, you would have enjoyed my first karate test then because one of the men on the testing panel, here I was, a white belt, standing in front of this testing panel of black belts, and he asked me to parse haya. <laughs> in case you didn't know, it's a Cal Perfect Third Masculine Singular. <laughs> so, yeah, I think we've already merged those two subjects at some point. I'm going to do something a little different than I usually do with a sermon. Uh, no, I'm not going to go to the New Testament. I'm going to be in the Old Testament. But I'm going to be in the book of Jerry Meyer. You know the book of Jerry Meyer? I, I was in the car one day right after I had started teaching at Baptist Bible Seminary. And uh, I was you know, hitting the buttons on, on the radio. And one of our buttons was set to the local Christian station. And there was this guy with this thick Caribbean accent who kept talking about this guy who was instrumental in his salvation named Jerry Meyer. And I couldn't for the life of me figure out who he's talking about. You know, I, I've heard of you know, a good number of the, the common preachers and things. And all of a sudden I began to realize he was quoting from Jeremiah. <laughs> so we're going to be talking about the book of Jerry Meyer this morning, but it's not going to be an expositional exposition of a specific passage, but more of a biblical theology. You understand biblical theology is a legitimate discipline. It's a necessary and essential discipline, kind of halfway between exegesis and systematic theology. The idea of biblical theology, and there's still some disagreement about how this is best done and how it should be done, but the basic idea of biblical theology is you're beginning to synthesize books or the books of an author or the books of a time period using the terminology of the text. So in other words, if I were doing a biblical theology of the book of Genesis, I would not use the word Trinity. Trinity is a term that comes from outside the text that describes truth and yet I would not apply it in a biblical theology because in a biblical theology, I would want to be talking about who is God and what is he like, who is man and what is he like, and what is the relationship between these two using the terms of the text. So if when I build a biblical theology of the Pentateuch, I focus on God as creator, God as redeemer two very basic key concepts in the Pentateuch. So sometimes it's good after you've been studying in a book and you've been piecing together all the bits and pieces and piling up the bricks to step back and say, what are the threads that run through this book that answer those questions? And one of the threads that runs through the book of Jeremiah that answers the question, what is the relationship between God and man? is prayer. There's an amazing amount of material on prayer in the book of Jeremiah, and I'm going to try and hit some of the highlights for you in the next few minutes and hopefully encourage all of us to pray 
more deeply, especially in troubled days like ours. And Jeremiah was not a stranger to troubled days. Jeremiah lived at the end of the 6th century, end of the 7th century, beginning of the 6th century. Get my centuries straight. He began to prophesy in the reign of Josiah, and he served under five different Judean kings and a Babylonian-appointed governor named Gedaliah. He ministered in the waning days of Judah. Sometimes we call him the weeping prophet. Honestly, that has more to do with the hardness of our hearts than it does with his character. Because he wasn't a wimp. When we say the weeping prophet, we, we tend to think of Jeremiah as, as this real wimp. Ugh. Who wants to read that? Jeremiah ministered in 40 of the toughest years that his nation ever saw. And he loved God so deeply. And he loved his people so deeply that it pained him to know what was coming. And Jeremiah, as a prophet, knew from the very beginning of his call in chapter 1 what was coming. Because God told him flat out, the Babylonians are coming. That harsh and vicious and ruthless people that crushed everything in their path. Jeremiah prayed for his people, often with deep sorrow and with tears. And we take up this morning in Jeremiah chapter 7, because Jeremiah was told not to pray for his people. You say, oh, I know lots of passages that talk about praying. Pray without ceasing. Continue earnestly in prayer. Being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. You're familiar with those verses. But Jeremiah was told, stop it. Don't pray for them. We need to see that, but we need to see Jeremiah's response to that. Chapter 7, verse 16, as for you, as for you, he's going to set up a contrast, and what he's contrasting with is the previous judgment, verse 14, therefore I will do to the house that is called by my name, that's the temple in Jerusalem, in which y'all trust. They were trusting in the temple, not in the God of the temple. And to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. God destroyed Shiloh because of their sin. So in verse 16, as for you, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. Ouch. Jeremiah at this point has probably been, pray, been prophesying, been ministering for a number of years, and things are not getting better. And early on in his ministry, 
There was still the hope that if Judah repented, if the Judah turned back to God, they might be spared. And now God says, Jeremiah, that's enough. I don't want to hear anymore. The command is the kind of command that means stop it. There's two different ways of expressing a prohibition in Hebrew. One is a general legal kind of prohibition, thou shalt not. Thou shalt not ever eat peas with your knife. Okay? That would be a Ten Commandments kind of prohibition. But this prohibition is the kind that's used when there's urgency, when someone is doing something wrong or is about to. It has the idea of stop it. And God says to Jeremiah, stop praying. Don't you dare. I see you're about to. Don't open your mouth. Your mom ever say that when you, when you were about to talk back? Don't you dare. Jeremiah was told not to pray. Well, did he listen? Nope. You go down to chapter 18, or chapter 8, verse 18, on down into chapter 9. You're in chapter 8. My joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Behold the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and breadth of the land. And he goes on to pour out his heart about the sickness of the nation. He just can't help himself from praying. He can't give it up. In chapter 10, he picks up his prayer again. Verse 19, Woe is me because of my hurt. My wound is grievous, but I said, Truly this is an affliction, and I must bear it. My tent is destroyed, and all my cords are broken. My children have gone from me, and they are not. There is no one to spread my tent again and to set up my curtains. For the shepherds are stupid and do not inquire of the Lord. One of the things that hurt Jeremiah was the fact that his people did not turn to God. The leaders, the shepherds of the people did not turn to God. They were not calling upon God for help. So Jeremiah just can't help himself. So in chapter 11, verse 14, God says to Jeremiah again, almost the same words, Therefore do not pray for this people or lift up cry or prayer on their behalf, for I will not listen when they call to me in the time of their trouble. You ever realize that there may come a point where God says, you're on your own. Even if you do turn to me, it's too late. But Jeremiah can't help himself. 
in chapters 11 and 12, he begins to pray again. He, he admits that they were out to get him. Notice in chapter 11, beginning with verse 19, but I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know it was against me they devised schemes, saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. But, O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I have committed my cause. There were some who were actually out to get Jeremiah. We know later in the book they actually accused him of false prophecy, and the penalty for false prophecy under the law was death by stoning. God brought him through that. And yet there were people out to get him. And even though they were out to get him, his heart was still broken for his people. And he continued to pray for them. He wanted God's judgment, righteous judgment on those who were, who were out to get him. And yet he wanted the nation spared. And he couldn't help himself but pray. In these chapters... Chapter 12, righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you, yet I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? He goes on to pray that God will indeed punish the wicked, but spare the nation. He can't help himself but pray. And at this point, you, you begin to ask, you know, is, is Jeremiah that disobedient? God tells him not to pray. And, you know, honestly, if, if God told me not to pray, I'd probably say, oh, okay. Wouldn't you? Let's be honest. Well, if that's the way you want it, Lord. But he hurt so bad for his people. He couldn't help it. God's not done yet. So the third prohibition of prayer is in chapter 14, verse 11. The word of the Lord has just come to Jeremiah and told him that judgment is coming. And the Lord said to me, verse 11, do not pray for the welfare of this people. Though they fast, I will not hear their cry. Though they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I will not accept them, but I will consume them by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Now you would think at that point, I mean, God is saying, even if they fast, even if they show me how sincere they are by denying themselves food, I'm not going to listen. So stop praying for them. Okay, that's the third time he's been told to stop praying for them. Certainly by now, all of us would have dropped out of the praying business. Okay, Lord, yeah, three times, that's enough. You don't have to tell me again. Look at the next verse. Then I said, ah, oh, Lord God. Behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. He comes right back 
Lord, it's, it's not all the people. The prophets are lying to them. The prophets are saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. He, he was just told, I mean, like in the previous sentence, not to pray anymore. And he can't help himself. Comes right back to it. Is Jeremiah disobedient? God doesn't punish him for this. God doesn't rebuke him for it. We'll see God's response in a moment. But I think God was testing Jeremiah's heart here. In much the way that he tested Moses on Mount Sinai, when Israel committed the sin with the golden calf, God said, get out of my way. I'm going to take them out. And to add a little incentive, he told Moses, by the way, I'll make a great nation of you. I'll give all the promises that I had given to Abraham to you. What was Moses' response? Oh, sure, God, let me get out of the way. No, it wasn't. Lord, you can't do that. What will the Egyptians say? There was quite a conversation with, with God there. Take my Pentateuch class. I'll give you that whole conversation. But God tested Moses' heart. And Moses couldn't help but pray for his people. And God spared them. Oh, some were punished. The guilty were punished. And Jeremiah's heart is being tested very much like Moses's, and Moses is going to come back up in a moment. Chapter 15. After Jeremiah just can't help but turning back to prayer. In fact, let, let's back up a few verses for, before we go into chapter 15. Chapter 14, beginning with verse 20. We acknowledge our wickedness, O Lord, and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Do not spurn us for your name's sake. Do not dishonor your glorious throne. Remember and do not break your covenant with us. Sounds a lot like Moses, don't it? And he's confessing the sins on the people on their behalf, like Moses did. But notice chapter 15, verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, my heart would not turn toward this people. Send them out of my sight and let them go. And when they ask you, where shall we go? You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, those who are for pestilence to pestilence and those who are for the sword to the sword, those who are for famine to famine and those who are for captivity to captivity. Moses. Moses stood in the breach, the psalmist tells us. Samuel did too. We can look, for example, at 1 Samuel chapter 12. Moses prayed for the people, and it was part of the role of a prophet to pray. For the people. But God says, okay, Jeremiah, I told you to stop praying, but you, you won't stop praying. Okay. 
But understand, they've gone too far. They are going to face judgment now. And even if Moses and Samuel both stood here right now praying for this people, I wouldn't listen. It's interesting, God doesn't rebuke Jeremiah for praying. He just says it's gone too far. Pray all you want. I know you're not going to stop. You've proven that. But you cannot entirely spare them from what's to come. The heart of Jeremiah, what an example to us. But let's look at the other side of the coin. The other side of the coin is the people. So take a look at Jeremiah 21. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent to him Pasher, the son of Melchiah, and Zephaniah, the priest, the son of Messiah, saying, Inquire of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is making war against us. Perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful deeds and will make him withdraw from us. Zedekiah. Zedekiah's predecessor, not the immediate predecessor, but the, the, the one who reigned a significant length of time, was Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim was just plain evil. Okay, there are some things in this world you realize that are just plain evil. Jehoiakim fit in that category. When, when a, a scroll of Jeremiah's prophecies came into Jehoiakim's hands, it was being read out loud to him. And as it was being read, he was slicing off chunks of the scroll and throwing them into the fire. Zedekiah wasn't that bad. He was just weak. He was, he was not a good king. He, he did what was evil, but he did what was evil because he didn't have the guts to stand up to his own people. And so at times he tried to help Jer, uh, Jeremiah out. And other times he just let the wicked have their way. Zedekiah was weak. And so now... Zedekiah has rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. He has sworn an oath of allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar. That was the norm in the world at this time. You swore an oath of loyalty to your suzerain. And he has sworn that oath, and now he's rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar's already reduced to Jerusalem twice in 605 and 597. And now it's... 588, 587. And Jerusalem is about to be besieged again. And Zedekiah has suddenly had this inspiration. Maybe God will help. So he breaks his oath. Remember, oaths in the ancient world were sworn in the name of your God. So Zedekiah has sworn an oath in the name of the Lord to submit to Nebuchadnezzar, and he has broken that oath. 
That's what it means to take the name of the Lord in vain in the Ten Commandments, to break an oath sworn in the name of the Lord. And Zedekiah has suddenly had this inspiration. I've, I've violated my oath that I took in the name of the Lord, but maybe God will bail us out. Doesn't that make sense? And so he sends to Jeremiah. Oh, Jeremiah, intercede for us. Zedekiah wants prayer. But is he sincere? No, he is not. If he were sincere, he wouldn't have broken his, his word that he had sworn in the name of the Lord. Or if he realized now that that was a mistake, he would back up in a hurry. He wants God now to jump in and bail him out. Not going to happen. The Lord had repeatedly offered them a chance to repent. Look at verses 8 and 9 here in chapter 21. And to this people you shall say, Thus says the Lord, Before... Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out and surrenders to the Chaldeans who are besieging you shall live and shall have his life as a prize of war. God says Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. There is no doubt about that. What are your options? You can stay in the city and die, or you can surrender to Nebuchadnezzar and live. That was not the answer that they wanted. They wanted God to jump in and bail them out of their stupidity. We ever done that? No, none of us have ever done that. In verse 12, the king is offered an opportunity to repent. Make sure I'm in the right chapter here. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of David. Thus says the Lord, execute justice in the morning and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. Behold, I am against you, O inhabitant of the valley, O rock of the plain, declares the Lord. You who say, who shall come down against us, or who shall enter our habitations? Again, they were trusting in the presence of the temple among them, not trusting in the God of the temple. Not that we would ever do anything like that. I will punish you according to the fruit of your deeds, declares the Lord. God gives the house of David, the kings, the opportunity to repent and show their repentance. And part of that for them would have meant reestablishing justice because justice had gone out the window, as so often happens in this kind of a wicked society. In chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, the king is again given the opportunity to repent, to be spared, if only he will surrender to the Babylonians. Zedekiah is too weak 
He can't do that. He just, he, he can't bring himself to do that. Flip over now to Jeremiah 37. In Jeremiah 37, the city is already in ruins. If you want to read Jeremiah's perspective on the destruction of Jerusalem, read the book of Lamentations. But in chapter 37, um, oh, no, 37 is not the passage that I'm looking for for that. That's still Zedekiah, the second plea. Let's go to the third plea. For time's sake, let's jump to 42. In 37, God offers Zedekiah another chance. Um, But in chapter 42, Jerusalem has been ruined. Nebuchadnezzar has appointed a governor. He's not going to allow a king anymore because the kings have just given him nothing but trouble. And so Gedaliah is governor. And Gedaliah is murdered. Then all the commanders of the forces, 42.1, and Johanan the son of Korea, and Jezaniah the son of Hoshiah, and all the people from the least to the greatest came near and said to Jeremiah the prophet, Let our plea for mercy come before you, and pray to the Lord your God, Lord your God, Lord your God, for us, for all this remnant, because... We are all left with but a few as your eyes see us, that the Lord your God may show us the way we should go and the thing that we should do. Doesn't this sound pious? They, maybe they've learned their lesson. Jerusalem is destroyed, and they come to Jeremiah and say, well, Jeremiah, pray for us. You, know, you guys who are, are preacher boys who are, who are going to become pastors and, and preachers, it's not uncommon to have people just walk up to you in public at a dinner or something where they, they know you're the pastor and say, oh, would you pray for me? There are people who would not darken the door of a church but because you're a holy man. Could you put in a good word for me? You know that's true, don't you? Yep. So Jeremiah says, I will pray to the Lord, your your God. (laughs) Throws it right back in their face. According to your request, whatever the Lord answers you, I will tell you. I will keep nothing back from you. And they reassure him again that they'll do whatever they're told. At the end of 10 days, verse 7, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Then he summoned Yohanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces who were with them, and all the people from the least to the greatest, and said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your plea for mercy before him. If you will remain in this land... Then I will build you up and not pull you down. I will plant you and not pluck you up. For I relent of the disaster that I did to you. Some of the wording here is right out of Jeremiah's commission. That's another subject. 
Do not fear the king of Babylon of whom you are afraid. Do not fear him, declares the Lord, for I am with you to save you and to deliver you from his hand. I will grant you mercy that he may have mercy on you and let you remain in your own land. But if you say, we will not remain in this land, disobeying the Lord, the voice of the Lord your God and saying, no one will uh, no, we will go to the land of Egypt where we shall not see war or hear the sound of the trumpet or be hungry for bread and we will dwell there. Then hear the word of the Lord, O remnant of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. If you set your faces to enter Egypt and go to live there, then the sword that you fear shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt. And the famine that you are afraid of shall follow closely after you to Egypt. And there you shall die. See, up to this point, Nebuchadnezzar had not taken Egypt. They thought they could flee there and be safe. Doesn't work that way. Ask Jonah. And Jeremiah tells them, stay here. You, what you want God to tell you is to go to Egypt, and you're not going to get it. If you go to Egypt, you will die there. In this succeeding narrative, they say, oh, Jeremiah, Baruch put you up to this. <laughs> There's some background to that we don't have time to get into. Baruch was Jeremiah's assistant, but Baruch probably came from a very wealthy family. And they think Baruch has put Jeremiah up to this to, to ruin them. And guess what they do? They kidnap Jeremiah and go to Egypt. And not long after that, Nebuchadnezzar conquered Egypt. And they weren't safe. But they came to Jeremiah saying, oh, pray for us. But they wanted prayer without the commitment to do what God asked of them. They were not sincere. They were just downright dishonest. They were praying but without thy will be done. Lord's Prayer, thy will be done. See, that's an in, in integral part of prayer. Jeremiah here gives us two important lessons on prayer, I think. The first is Jeremiah loved his people so deeply that even when God himself commanded them him not to pray, he couldn't help it. Is prayer that kind of a compulsion in your life? It's not in mine. And I have to admit, if God told me not to, not to pray for my people, I'd probably step back and say, okay, God, do what you got to do. Jeremiah is convicting. Jeremiah loved his people. And he couldn't help but pray for them. 
the words were no more than out of God's mouth in, in some cases, and he was right back praying for them. Something to work towards. But the other lesson was the people, they wanted to pray too, and they, they wanted the prophet to pray for them because he had some kind of special power, like pastors do. <laughs> yeah, get the pastor to pray for you. It's bound to be answered, right? But their hearts were not with God at all. They were dishonest. They were praying, but they could not bring themselves to pray, Thy will be done. And they would only obey, they would only submit to God if He told them what they wanted to hear. You know, that's not submission. So as we trace this thread through the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah couldn't help but pray. The people wanted prayer because they thought it was somehow magical. But they were really only willing to submit to God's answer if it suited them. Where are you this morning? I want to be more like Jeremiah. I hope you do too. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for giving us the book of Jeremiah. Sometimes it's a difficult book to read. Sometimes it's hard to, to track through, and yet there's so much there. We called Jeremiah a weeping prophet, but that says more about our hearts than his. He loved his people so deeply. Help us to love our people that deeply that we just can't help but pray for them, for our people, for our nation. In Jesus' name, amen.